Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, July 19th. Congress is back in town. Negotiations are continuing around a pair of major spending packages. And second quarter campaign fundraising reports due late last week offered a window into the midterm election landscape. Greg will take a quick look inside the numbers before we're joined by Luba Gretchen Shirley, who lost a congressional campaign in 2018, but still got a big victory by making it a little easier for mothers to run for office. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerose Jim. Thank you, Kyle. Jerose Jim is what we lovingly call the political statistic I introduce every episode of Down Ballot Counts. And this episode's gem is 13.8 million. That's how much in cumulative campaign cash on hand that the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump in January posted in their accounts at the end of June, according to updated campaign finance reports filed last week with the Federal Election Commission. Adam Kinzinger of Illinois and Liz Cheney of Wyoming, probably the two most vocal anti-Trump Republicans in the House, are also the most cash rich of these 10 Republicans. Kinzinger reported $3.1 million in cash on hand, and Cheney, the former House Republican conference chair ousted from her post earlier this year, reported $2.8 million cash on hand after she raised $1.9 million during the months of April, May, and June. That was by far the most raised by any of the 10 Republicans during the second quarter. Three other pro-impeachment Republicans have more than $1 million in campaign cash on hand. Tom Rice of South Carolina with $1.6 million, Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio with $1.5 million, and Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington State with $1 million. A big bankroll, though, may not be enough to overcome serious challenges in the Republican primary. Trump has made clear he wants to be a kingmaker in the 2022 Republican primaries and retaliate against Republican officeholders he views as insufficiently loyal. It will be interesting to see how many of the 10 House Republicans will return to Congress in 2023. Some may not run again, and some may be unseated in the Republican primaries. We'll post the full list of the 10 Republicans and their campaign cash on hand totals on the Jarrow's Gym page on our website, about.bgov.com. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Jarrow's Gym. Up next, we'll hear a little bit more about raising money when we talk with Luba Gretchen Shirley. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Luba Gretchen Shirley, the founder and CEO of the Vote Mama Foundation and Political Action Committee, organizations that grew out of her groundbreaking congressional campaign that successfully petitioned the Federal Election Commission to allow campaign money to be used for child care. Luba, thanks so much for joining Down Ballot Counts. Thank you guys for having me. So I'm not sure how many of our listeners know your story and how what you did really changed the game for working parents and working moms specifically um, who want to get involved in our government. Can you tell us just a little bit about the backstory um, of your campaign and kind of what sparked this effort? Yeah, absolutely. I I was not planning on running for Congress. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I had always been politically active. And then the election happened in 2016, and I remember reaching out to the local Democratic Party and not getting anywhere. Um, Nobody would call me back. I would email, I would call, 
really no response. And then I ended up starting an indivisible group to hold my representative, Peter King, accountable for his horrific voting record. And I ended up running against him. He had been in office since I was 12. And I remember people asking when they were trying to convince me to run, they said, what is the one thing that we can do to help convince you to do this? And I remember laughing and saying, well, I need childcare. You know, I was a mom with two tiny children. My mom is a teacher. And so at the time I was consulting, but my, I had the babies all day and my mom would come home at 3.30 in the afternoon and watch them. And that's when I would start working. And I'd work, you know, into the evenings and then once they would go to bed. But during a congressional campaign, you can't really do that. You're working 24-7. And I had two babies with me for the first six months of the campaign. Nicholas would literally be in the baby carrier nursing and Mila was three and running around next to me and I'd be giving speeches. And it was about, you know, five months or so, six months into the campaign where I said, this is not sustainable. I can't continue to do this. And I asked if I could use some of the funds that I was raising for my campaign for childcare. You know, you give up your salary to run for office and it's really difficult to make ends meet on one salary with children on Long Island and pretty much anywhere in this country to pick up the cost of childcare while you're already trying to pay all your bills and your school loan payments without a salary is really difficult. And this is why we have so many millionaires in office. And everybody said it's political suicide. You're going to get attacked as a woman. You'll be attacked as a mother. Don't do it. I didn't have a choice. And we put the request in, and to my surprise, it was a bipartisan, unanimous decision. It changed the way that parents run for office. Hillary Clinton and 25 members of Congress wrote in in support, and they approved it. And we've now seen 51 federal candidates and almost 70 state-level candidates use their campaign funds for child care. It's the first major structural barrier that we've broken down to make it easier for working parents to run for office. Yeah, I mean, it really is a full-time job, and that inherently limits the types of people who can run for office. And so that's, from your campaign, that's really the thrust of why you launched your organization, right? Yeah, the I cried for a day after I lost. I mean, we came closer to unseating King than anyone had in history. We came within six points where he yes. normally won 24 to 40 points. That's my, that's my five-year-old downstairs yelling. Um, but we, we came really close and I cried for a day. And then the day after all I could do was think back to the beginning of my campaign and what support would have made a difference. You know, I remember, I remember reading quotes from people like Kirsten Gillibrand and Grace Meng and thinking, well, if they can do it with, with babies, then I should be able to do this. But you don't have that support system when you first start out. And I launched Vote Mama PAC first to support Democratic moms running from school board to Senate across the country, because when you run for office with young kids, you are immediately discredited. Voters don't take you seriously. The press doesn't. Donors don't take you as seriously. Yet if you want something done, you give it to a busy mom. And you look at you look at the policies in our country. We've been failing working families for generations because we don't have enough people in office with power who can actually legislate on their lived experience. I mean, you have people in office who understand what it's like not to have paid family leave, not to have access to quality, affordable child care, what it's like to rely on the children's health insurance program for their own kids' health care. You're not going to have representatives who let the funding for CHIP lapse. It makes a difference who has a seat at the table. So I launched the PAC first, and then about a year later, I launched the foundation to really break down the structural barriers, to work in a bipartisan way, to actually pass legislation that makes a difference for families across the country. And our, our long-term goal of the foundation is to pass universal child care. Um, and you just released uh, a report, uh, right? And I think you just mentioned some of the statistics that are in the report, right? What else did it, did it find? That What are your main takeaways, at least? Yeah, so we released our very first report on campaign funds for child care. So after my campaign, we have now been working. My, my FEC ruling approved the use of campaign funds for child care for all federal candidates. 
but every state has its own rules. So we're literally working state by state. The goal is to get all 50 states by 2023 to approve the use of campaign funds for childcare for those running for state and local seats in that in, in each state. So we've been working with legislators to get this legislation passed. This year alone, we've actually doubled the number of states have passed legislation. We started the year with seven states that, have passed, that had passed legislation. We're now at 14 states. So we're still waiting for the governor in Delaware to sign the legislation, but it's, it's passed. So with Delaware, we're at 14 states and another 10 have approved it through ethics rulings. So we did some research. We looked into who is using campaign funds for child care, what kind of a difference it makes. So at the federal level, 73% of the funds used are used by women. So it makes a huge difference in getting moms to step up and run. It's that one barrier that really makes it easier for working moms to run for office. Interestingly enough, at the state level, more individual men have used their campaign funds for child care, but the bulk of funding, that 64%, have been used by female candidates. So women tend to use their campaign funds for child care um, more on a consistent basis for daily child care so they can go out and knock on doors and talk to voters and attend events. Men tend to use it more when they want their spouse to join them at an event and they need to hire child care to cover, to cover um, care for their kids during a particular event. I want to let Greg ask some questions, but, but, but that reminded me, like, I was, I was thinking about it as I was thinking about questions, like, I wonder if the pandemic really helped to like uh, get people more interested in in your mission and understanding and accepting and uh, just supportive overall. I, I gotta think it was uh, helpful for your cause. It it honestly, I remember we launched the foundation at the beginning of the pandemic, just as everything was going into lockdown, and I was so so worried. And it it really has it has helped because when I was running. Anytime I would talk about childcare or paid family leave, sure enough, someone would say, ignore the women's issues, stick to the bread and butter issues. Before the pandemic, we were losing $57 billion a year because of the lack of childcare. Before the pandemic, people are now finally understanding because of, because of the pandemic, people are now understanding that this really isn't just a women's issue. It's an economic issue. It's a family issue. It's an issue that's affecting everyone, even if you don't have children. It affects employers. It affects employees. It affects our economy. It makes a difference. And... We are, you know, we're the only country in the world other than Papua New Guinea without paid family leave. And we're losing $500 billion a year um, if we had similar labor force participation rates to countries like Canada and Germany, countries that have access to paid family leave, quality, affordable, subsidized child care. You would have five and a half million more women in the workforce and $500 billion more in the economy each year. Why are mothers of young children not ta- running for office not taken as seriously as you mentioned? How and why is that? I had a woman who was a max out donor in my campaign when I told her about Vote Mama when I was when I was launching it. And she said, I don't agree with the premise of your organization. And I asked her why, and she said, Well, moms moms with little kids, they're too busy. They don't have the time to run for office. And they're not gonna put the effort in. And I said to her, I said, You maxed out to my campaign. I had a one year old and a three year old. I was nursing. But she goes, You worked her ass off during your campaign. Most moms aren't gonna do that. I was so infuriated by that statement. I said, all moms work their ass off. Every single one of us is doing multiple jobs at the exact same time. We're juggling our children's lives and whatever job we're doing for salary. And I will tell you, I've never met a mom who ran for office with young kids who didn't do it for one particular reason. You know, a lot of men will run for office and they'll they'll jump in and they'll think, you know, should I start with the house or should I start with Senate? And this is a great political career move for me. A mom with a young kid 
It is so difficult to run for office when you have small kids. You're doing it usually because there was one particular issue. Your representative voted against health care. You know, my representative voted to take health care away from 74,000 uh, people in our district alone. And that is, that is a particular issue that really incensed me. And every time I've talked to a mom who's running for office, it, you know, there was, there was a mom who was running for a town council seat who we supported and won. And she literally, her sidewalks were broken. And so she actually invited her entire town council to come and walk with her as she tried to take her children to school. She made them do the walk to school with her. And she showed them how broken their sidewalks were and how dangerous it was for her to try to take her kids to school. And when they did nothing about it, she decided to run for office. It gives you a different perspective. And so many people just don't think you have the time and the commitment to put in, but those are exactly the people who do have, who do have the passion and the commitment, and they're running to make their district and the country better for their children and for everybody else's kids. How do you evaluate or vet Democratic candidates to endorse? What kind of assistance uh, do you provide endorsed candidates? On the PAC side, we, we interview them. The, the first question is always, you know, who are you? Tell us about yourself and why you're running for office. And you can get a pretty good understanding of who that person is in the first two minutes of them speaking. Um, you know, we go through all the, the standard questions of the details of their campaign. But honestly, it's who are you and why are you running? And then we, I mean, we've supported about 160 candidates so far in the PAC side who are running. Um, we provide direct support, direct financial support um, where we can. We provide training. We've helped people hire staff. We've done everything from help somebody put together a finance plan and figure out how to do call time to helping them figure out what car seat they should buy for their toddler to helping them find childcare. Um, we have... Normally, when you talk to a PAC, you pretend everything is perfect in your campaign. You know, you've raised all this money, you have all these endorsements, everything is going so wonderfully. I wanted to provide a safe space where you could actually talk about what's really going on in your campaign, where, you know, we provide mentors. We have this incredible advisory committee. All moms who have run for office before, people like uh, Representative Katie Porter, Representative Grace Meng, uh, Representative Gwen Moore, Terry Sewell, Kim Schreier, like all of these incredible women um, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, these women who have run for office with young kids before, they serve as mentors to our candidates. And then we provide wraparound support, everything from helping them get press to uh, sharing their information on social media, from helping them put together policy plans to literally training them how to do call time. That is, um, you need to be able to provide a safe space where candidates can really talk about what's happening in their campaign and ask for help. Mm -hmm. And what are some down-ballot uh, contests in the 2021-2022 election where you see opportunities for your organization? We have so many incredible down-ballot candidates that we're supporting. People like Tamika Isaac-Devine, she's running for mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. Michelle Cooper-Kelly, who's running for mayor of Marietta, Georgia. Jen Jordan, who's running for attorney general in Georgia. Anna Valencia, who's running for secretary of state in Illinois. Deborah Gardner, who's running for a house seat, a state house seat in Virginia. Um, Christine Clark is running for New Jersey State Senate. People like Rachel Levy, who's running for Virginia House of Delegates. Um, and at the federal level, Jasmine Beach Ferraro, we just announced her race. She's running for Congress and in Western North Carolina against Madison Cawthorn. And we just opened our next round of endorsements for this year. We have over 50 applications in just the first few days of those applications being open. And we are excited to start talking to more mamas running um, at the state and federal level for this year and for next. And what advice can you give prospective candidates now that you've been through the process as a candidate yourself in 2018 in New York's second congressional district? What are some of their most frequently asked questions? I think one of the hardest things when you run for office um, 
there's two really hard things. One is figuring out the balance of how you manage your life and running for office. And the other thing, honestly, is, is how you raise funds. You know, I remember when I first started, I was told I had to raise $100,000 before anyone would take me seriously. And I come from a nonprofit background. I've worked in international development and women's economic empowerment. Um, I did not have a huge wealthy network to go out to and raise funds from. And I raised over $2 million. We outraised Peter King and we did it through small dollar donations and a lot of call time. And call time is, uh, it's a necessary evil when running for office, but you have to do it. And teaching moms how to do it and how to do it well, because unfortunately, until we have campaign finance reform, raising money is really how you show strength in running for office. And if you're a mom with young kids, you're already discredited because people don't, don't think you have the time. If you can raise the funds and be very serious about that, it makes a huge difference in how, how you're looked at as a candidate. So we spent a lot of time putting together call time guides and actually sitting down with our candidates and teaching them how to do call time and giving them, I mean, there, there are some silly tips that I will tell you. I colored through call time. I know that sounds crazy, but I would literally sit with a headset on and an adult coloring book and a whole bunch of coloring pencils and I would color. Um, but literally I've sent, I've sent, pencils and, and coloring books to some of our candidates and a headset when they first when they first get endorsed. I've sent that to some as a, you know, here's here's your call time gift. Now start calling and raising. The other thing, honestly, being able to talk to somebody and figure out how you balance that. When you're running for Congress, there really is there is no playbook. And there is no playbook on how to do it with small children. And I will tell you, Kirsten Gillibrand sat down with me once for about an hour and talked me through how she puts her schedule together, how she makes time for her children, how she schedules everything and prioritizes the different aspects of her life. And she's the first person who ever made me feel like, hey, you can do both and you can do both well and actually have a life and serve your constituents. Having those conversations I think is really what is so important. I remember telling Debbie Wasserman Schultz about Vote Mama when I first launched it. And I said, you know, there's really no one to call and reach out to when you first launch. And she's like, you could have called me. And I started to laugh and I said, I did. But back then nobody knew who I was, so nobody got back to me. And that's what most most moms, when they first start, you don't know how to how to juggle all of this. How do you juggle nursing and dropping your kids off at childcare and finding childcare and making sure you actually have time to go to the soccer practice and dance recitals and all of that while running for office. You need to talk to other moms. So I think the most important thing that Vote Mama does is really provide that network. Well, Luba, this was a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on Down Ballot Counts today. Thank you very much for having me. Before we close the show, we've got a parting trivia shot that I'll attempt to answer on the spot. This is Down Ballot Counts. That's right. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each episode, I try and stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. We focus this episode on mothers of young children who run for political office, and so I'll do the same for my trivia question. And my question is, who was the first member of Congress to give birth while serving in Congress? Now, that's not an easy question. I'm a nice guy, so I'm going to give Kyle and you, our listeners, four choices is the answer Susan Molinari? Is it Kirsten Gillibrand? Is it Yvonne Brathwaite Burke? Or is it Tammy Duckworth? Kyle, what is your answer? Well, the person I was thinking of wasn't mentioned among those four, so uh, I'll go Susan Molinari. Okay, that was a good guess, but it's actually Yvonne Brathwaite Burke, a California Democrat who served in the House from 1973 to 1979. She gave birth in her first House term in November of 1973 and was granted maternity leave, another first in congressional history. 
Breathwaite Burke is the holder of other firsts in 1966. She was the first black woman elected to the California Assembly, and she was the first woman to serve as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Susan Molinari, a New York Republican, gave birth in 1996 when she was serving in the House along with her husband, Bill Paxson, also a New York Republican. Kirsten Gillibrand, a New York Democratic senator, gave birth to her second child in 2008 when she was a member of the House. And Tammy Duckworth, an Illinois Democrat, first gave birth in 2014 when she was a House member, and in 2018, she became the first U.S. Senator to give birth while in office. In total, 10 women have given birth while serving in Congress. The others are Arkansas Democrat Blanche Lambert Lincoln, Utah Republican Enid Green Waldholtz, California Democrat Linda Sanchez, South Dakota Democrat Stephanie Hersla Sandlin, Washington Republican Kathy McMorris Rogers, and Washington Republican Jamie Herrera Butler. I don't know if any of those was your choice, Kyle, but those are all 10 right there. And that's your trivia for this episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.